0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit (laughs) InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, that's a good start. Good morning, everybody. I am Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, welcome to Crosspoint. If you have a Bible, open it to uh, Isaiah 42 is where we will be this morning. As we are continuing our Series through some portions of Isaiah, and the theme of this Advent series is seeing Christ in the Old Testament, particularly in the Book of Isaiah. And uh, last week, Will kicked us off with a, a really just a wonderful message on the incarnation and the beauty of Christ in Isaiah, and how Isaiah the prophet was pointing to Jesus in the beginning chapters and. And Will did a wonderful job of positioning us to understand the message of Isaiah and to see what ultimately Isaiah is pointing towards. And Will's walking towards me now. We're going to give it one more try. Is that what we're going to do? Thank you. All right. Talk amongst yourselves for about 10 seconds. Testing, one, two, one, two. Nope. Nope. A little bit. We'll just stick with this. All right, as I was saying, um, we, last week Will did a wonderful job of positioning for us where Isaiah is on the timeline of the Bible, so I'm not going to get into that. I will, if you missed it, I will entrust you to getting the CD or getting it online. But this morning I want to read from Isaiah chapter 42, and I realize we are plummeting down into the middle of a complicated book and a complicated passage, but if if it confuses you at the beginning, it will make sense as we explain along the way. And I want us to see Christ, who is described here in Isaiah 42 as the Lord's servant. I want us to see Christ in these first nine verses of Isaiah 42, and we'll look at some truths that point us to Jesus. So let me read, and then we'll pray. The prophet Isaiah writes thousands of years ago, pointing forward to Jesus, these words... He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for His law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text and his word and, and open our hearts. Fathers, we come to you in, in the name of Jesus. We thank you that we can gather here this morning. We, we especially pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are gathering around your word and in your spirit and in the name of Christ that are in lands where the gospel is not free to be preached, where the church is persecuted. We pray for the saints in the Middle East, in Iran, in Iraq. We pray for your endurance and strength and perseverance to them. We think even much closer to us. We think of the people in Tennessee and the fires there in the Gatlinburg area that are suffering tremendously. And we pray for your grace to that city and that community. And we pray that even in this great tragedy, you might use it as an opportunity for the gospel to bring eternal salvation to many as they look up and see that their only hope is in Christ. We pray, Lord, for our city and for the churches, the Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in our city, We pray for your grace to them as Christians gather in our community. We pray that your will would be done in the pulpits of Columbus and you would draw unbelievers to yourself. We pray now in this church, in this setting, that you would be gracious to us and that we would ultimately see Jesus as we look at this Old Testament passage written hundreds of years before Christ came. And that we would see how ultimately all of your Bible points towards your son and that how that is a word for us today to be encouraged. Lord, I pray that you would bring from death to life unbelievers that are present this morning. And I pray that believers would be encouraged and exhorted and spurred on to love and good deeds. Lord, help us with these things. We are completely dependent on your spirit to do any of these things. So, Lord, may your Spirit work with your Word, and may you do beautiful things as we gather this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you haven't noticed in, in the preaching and teaching and what we've been doing here for the past 11 years is that we believe that the Bible, all of it, points ultimately to Jesus. And so, in Isaiah chapter 42, we have this wonderful picture that was written again hundreds of years before jesus came where this prophet that god had raised up for god's people as they were in the middle of despair as they were being carried away to captivity by the babylonians god raises up this prophet isaiah to speak words of hope to god's people in the midst of their despair and The first half of the book of Isaiah, as Will instructed us last week, is about the judgment that was coming. And then the second half of the book of Isaiah is words of hope after judgment has come to God's people, where the Lord is now instructing the prophet to speak words of hope. And here we see the prophet Isaiah speaking about this this servant that will come. Now ultimately, this servant that the Lord's prophet Isaiah is speaking about, we know to be Jesus and we're going to take a little bit of a shortcut here in a, in a moment at this point I just want you to take my word for the fact that what's going on in Isaiah chapter 42 when he is speaking of the Lord's servant is he's speaking ultimately about Jesus the one who has come in fact the whole Bible is really one big arrow that is pointing to Jesus the Old Testament itself from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament is one big arrow that's pointing to Jesus. Maybe you you grew up in a context where the Old Testament was preached as as maybe moral, well-intended stories, which are pictures of life that are given to us to teach us how to live and how not to do things. And certainly, there's much moral instruction in the Old Testament. But ultimately, the Old Testament is not just stories about how we should live better or act better or do this or don't do this. It's not just rules and laws that teach us how to strive harder to follow God. Ultimately, it is one big story of God dealing with his people, Israel, pointing them to a Savior outside of themselves that they could never bring about on their own. Ultimately, this one coming that is Jesus. So we read stories like Moses, who is the great deliverer of God's people. And Moses isn't just a story about courageous leadership. Moses is a kind of picture of Christ who leads his people out of captivity to God's promised land. We we read about stories like King David, who is this shepherd, but he's not just a shepherd. He's also this, this king who comes to establish God's kingdom. And the story of David is not just about courage in the face of giants or good, kingly, wise rule, but ultimately David is a kind of arrow, an earthly, flawed, temporary shadow that is pointing us to the true and better King Jesus that is coming. And then here in the prophet Isaiah, we see uh, these songs and these, these statements about the Lord's servant that is ultimately pointing us outside of ourselves, it's ultimately pointing God's people, Israel, outside of themselves to see this one that is coming, this one who will be the Lord's servant, who will do these things that God has said he would do. And so I want us to look at four truths from Isaiah chapter 42 about this Lord's servant that we will see here in just a moment, ultimately, clearly, is Jesus. Jesus. And I want us as we linger on these first nine verses of Isaiah 42 for the Lord to warm our hearts, to do, just to do his work in our hearts as we, as we prepare for a busy December, as we prepare for a busy Christmas season, that the Lord would be kind to cause us to see Jesus in the midst of our hurried, even sometimes frustrating Advent season. The first truth I want us to see is that the Lord's servant is compassionate. The Lord's servant is compassionate. Let me read verses 1-4 through again. The prophet says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Verse 3, listen to this. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for His law. How do we know for sure that this passage is speaking about Jesus, the one to come? Well. The New Testament sheds light on what ultimately this passage is referring to. So if you have a Bible, flip to Matthew chapter 12 or just see it on the screen. We have uh, a wonderful Old Testament commentator. His name is Matthew. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words about Jesus and applies this very text to Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus has been healing some people on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders of the day are very upset with Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath because they were taking this law that God gave His people to rest on this first day of the week. And they were, they were really binding themselves with this law. And they were really creating a, a rigorous law out of this, this principle of rest that God has given His people and making, making man serve The commandment rather than letting the commandment serve man and so they were upset with Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath and then in verse 15 Jesus it says Jesus aware of this withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah exactly what we read behold My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will have hope. So do you see what happened there? Matthew, the New Testament gospel writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applies the text that we read in Isaiah 42 to Jesus, saying that, that he is the one. He is this servant that is coming. And then what does it say about this servant? In verse 3, it says that Jesus is one that will come with compassion. And it describes it in this way that he, is a, he will not break a bruised reed. Just think about, just picture in your mind a a reed, like a little, just a little leaf, a tender leaf. Think about how weak a reed is. And not only is a a weak just in and of itself weak, it's it's now bruised. And, And the scripture here is speaking about Jesus in his ministry that he will not break a bruised reed. Richard Sibbs, who's one of my favorite Puritans who lived in the late 1500s and early 1600s, wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. And this was, he wrote on just half of a verse in Isaiah. He wrote a whole book. On just that one verse, just a consideration of the compassion and the mercy of Jesus. We, we actually have this book in our resource room. I think there's two copies left. Don't get excited. I'm not giving this one away. It's all marked up, and it's mine. I know some of you know that I give away books sometimes, and you had your trigger hand ready, and you were ready. Uh, this, is, this is mine. Um, I just had this memory. It's all marked up. I just had this memory. My mother used to buy weekly. She would go to the grocery store, and she would buy my brother and I each a big, huge Caramello, maybe it was a border Mexican thing, but it was a Caramello candy bar. And the way that my older brother would keep me from eating his, I would, as soon as my, we unloaded the groceries, I'd eat mine, just eat it. And then my brother would take his in front of me, and he was much more patient than I am, and he would, he would lick, he would in front of me, he would lick the whole <laughs> candy bar. So as to know that it was contaminated and I didn't want his candy bar. And then he'd put it in the refrigerator and eat it piece by piece through the week. It drove me crazy. <laughs> oh, why did I think of that? The reason I thought of that is I've, I've licked this book. You don't want this one. <laughs> I've marked it up. Listen to what... Well, that was a rabbit trail. Listen to what, listen to what Richard Sibbs says about this, about this ministry of Jesus about how compassionate he is. And compare this maybe to just your, your default view of Christ. You know that A.W. Tozer, a, a pastor in the mid-1900s, said that the most important thing about every person is what they think about when they think about God. Consider that. How do you picture Jesus? Are you, have you always kept the Lord at arm's distance because you feel like he is unapproachable, if if really your life was to be exposed in front of him, listen to what Sib says about Jesus. He says, He is a physician good at all diseases, especially at the binding up of a broken heart. He died that he might heal our souls with a plaster of his own blood. And by that death save us, which we were the procurers of ourselves by our own sins. What should we learn from this but to come boldly to the throne of grace in all our grievances? Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you conceal not your wounds open all before him and take not Satan's counsel go to Christ although trembling is the poor woman who said if I may but touch his garment we shall be healed and have a gracious answer friends Know that Jesus, in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, in all of what the Bible says about the majesty and the power and the judgment of Christ, in all of his righteousness, know that he is a compassionate Savior who does not break bruised reeds like us. And he comes, as Will instructed us last week, in all humility, born of a virgin taking on flesh to be like us in every way. Think about that. Jesus is compassionate. And because Jesus has been compassionate with us, we can be compassionate with others, with each other, even with people in this room. Listen to these words from the Crosspoint Church Covenant that we recite together as a membership every member meeting. In fact, we we recite it together tonight if you're a member you should come and you should recite these words with us at the end of our member meetings and you should take them seriously and we should come and we should conspire as to how we're to live together in mutual encouragement just one little one little one little note last um, last member meeting we had in november we had some difficult news to share with you about something that we're dealing with as a church and a bunch of you were here praise god for that Um, tonight we want you to come again even though maybe there's not difficult news to share but just because we are in covenant together and we need to love one another with compassion and and to care for one another and to prioritize spending time together and to to consider how we might spur one another on how does Jesus not break bruised reeds by living in and through His body in the way that they live compassionately towards one another. Caring for one another. Listen to these words from our covenant as a membership here at the church. We will eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by walking together in love and in the Spirit and by putting away all bitterness, anger, and injurious speech. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love with all humility and gentleness. We will patiently bear with each other, forgiving and encouraging and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other and admonishing one another when necessary. Do you know that that we collectively have a responsibility, biblically, to live together in that way? See, it takes the, the, the beautiful doctrine of the compassion of Jesus who will not break a bruised reed, and it moves it from merely being doctrinal up in the clouds, theoretical, and it lands in our lives as we treat one another in this way because Jesus has been compassionate with us. We can be compassionate with one another in this room and with an onlooking world that will frustrate the dickens out of us, right? And aren't we just vulnerable to this as, as Americans, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, we, just, we, we are an Angry culture. I pray that we would not be angry Christians. You know, I think I think road rage has now been transferred to like computer rage. We're just mad at the world that we see on the screen in front of us because everybody, everybody else's kids are cuter, their vacations are more awesome, their house is more clean, and it looks more like it should be on an HGT episode than ours. And we're just mad. And we're just frustrated. And we don't extend grace towards one another. And there's just something ungodly about that and unChrist-like about that. We would be, oh, that we would be gentle and generous towards one another as Jesus is gentle and generous towards us. Secondly, the Lord's servant brings justice. The Lord's servant brings justice. Look again just there in those first four verses. In verse one, it says that this Lord's servant will bring justice to the nations. In verse three, it says that he will faithfully bring forth justice. In verse 4, it says that He will not grow tired or faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth until and wait for that day when even to the farthest stretches of the coastlands wait for His law. Now, in one sense, <clears throat> Jesus has brought justice in the most important sense between, <clears throat> between us and God. Romans chapter five, verse one says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in one sense, in fact, in the most important sense, Jesus has brought justice. And think of this word justice as making things right. God is holy. We are fallen and Jesus, through his work on the cross, through his sacrificial death, bearing the wrath of God the Father, has made us right. So that now we, as fallen people, can enter into God's presence. And even though we were dead in our sins. He made us alive, as Ephesians 2 says, and he gave us the gift of faith and repentance, whereby after we have been made alive, now we can exercise faith in him. And now, because Jesus has taken away our sin, given us his righteousness, We can have peace with God. God's justice, God's holiness has been vindicated because He can now let sinners like us Who were once separated from him, but have now been made holy by the work of his son, draw near to him, and God can still be just by even allowing us to draw near to him. So, in that, that is the primary sense in which Jesus has brought justice to the earth through saving sinners. But in another sense, he continues to work this establishing of justice through his. People, Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. Think about these beautiful words. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things and these things that Paul at this point is responding to is just that very gospel that we just, that we just talked about there, that Jesus has brought the sinner close to God by dying for our sins so that we could draw near, so that God could remain just and we could now be justified by His work. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, listen to this, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus, the justice bringer, has made justice between the sinner and God. And now for the justified sinner, Jesus is now pleading, interceding for them on their behalf to God to bring justice for them in their lives. Jesus is the one who brings justice, and He brings justice for the oppressed. He brings justice for people who have been beaten down and who are scorned and who are like these bruised reeds who are liable to be broken. Jesus brings justice. And he continues to work through his people until that day when justice will be complete. We're kind of in the middle. We're sort of in a tension here between Jesus' first establishment of justice through his work on the cross and that ultimate day when Jesus will come again and finally and fully establish justice. So in one sense, he's brought justice. And in another sense, he's bringing a final justice. And we may ask, we may be tempted to think, well, why, would, why can't... Jesus, just bring justice now. Oh, I can't, why can't we just end all of this pain? Why can't he, Jesus just come back? Listen to what Peter says as he thinks about the, the, the patience of God and what we would perceive to be maybe even the slowness of God to bring about his final full justice over all evil, over all injustice. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. And I would say that that promise is this ultimate final triumph in Jesus when he will bring his final and full justice. So he's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And remember when we looked at 1 Timothy a few weeks ago, when we were working through 1 Timothy, when we look at this word all, that God desires all kinds of people to come to faith in Jesus. He has desired and willed from the beginning that rich people, poor people, all kinds of people, people in high positions, people in low positions, Jews, Gentiles, All, all kinds of people, church kids, rampant sinners, all people should reach repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So he's saying that there's coming a day when Jesus will come back and final and full justice will occur. But what's happening now, he says, he's being slow because he's waiting. He's giving more opportunities. So every day that Jesus does not come and bring final and full justice is God's mercy allowing justice to be worked, the gospel to be preached, more sinners to come to Jesus, more people to turn from their sin and trust in him. Jesus is pleading through his church, even us today, and is showing his patience and his mercy to the world as he is. Exercises patience, and what should our response be to this? Verse eleven, he says, "Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, meaning this world, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, the final justice, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness." dwells. So the Lord's servant has brought justice. He will bring a final justice. And as we wait for that, we lean forward knowing that through us, he works to bring this justice to an onlooking world. And by justice, we don't just mean societal ills being cured, but that ultimately all whom he has set his affection on in eternity past would come to repentance and know Jesus. Thirdly, the Lord's servant establishes a covenant. Look at verses 5 through 7 again in Isaiah 42. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I didn't mean to comment on this, but just look at verse 5. He gives breath to people on the earth and spirit to those who walk in it. That means that right now... I mean, in through your nose, out through your mouth, right? Right now, God is superintending even our breathing. And if he, if he decided to take it away, we would all shrivel up as a pile of dust. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Now notice here in verse 6 that that's the type of verse that we just sort of plop down into in the middle as we just kind of play Bible roulette and open it up and read Isaiah 42 verse 6. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. We might be instinctively inclined to apply that directly to ourselves. But who is the Lord speaking to here? He's speaking to the Lord's servant who we know is Jesus. And so this is the Father speaking to the Son saying, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those that sit in darkness." So friends, look, look at the beauty and the majesty of the good news of the gospel that is being proclaimed here in Isaiah 42. God the Father is saying to God the Son, I am going to take you by the hand and keep you, and I will give you as a covenant for the people, for the nations. To understand this, just this idea of covenant. We need, we need to do a little bit of work and understand what's going on with really Old Testament kings as they would enter into covenants with one another. So in the book of Genesis, there's this, there's this picture of these kings where they are striking a covenant with one another. And what they would do is that they would cut an animal in half it would take like a, a bull or a, a big cow, and they would slice the carcass right in half. And they would lay the one half of the carcass over here and one half of the carcass over there. And then these two kings would walk through the slain animal, through the middle of the slain animal. And that was how kings in the far ancient east would strike a covenant with one another. And what they were saying is they killed this animal and put its carcass... On either side, as they walked through the middle, they were saying ultimately to one another that if I break this covenant with you, may it be done to me as has been done to this animal. And if you break this covenant with me, this peace treaty that we have entered into, may it be done to you as is done to this animal. And then we see a picture of this in, in Genesis where God strikes a, a covenant with with Abraham, and he cuts this animal in two, but God causes Abraham to take a nap on the side, and God, being signified by this smoking pot, God walks through the middle of this animal, and in a sense, God strikes a covenant with himself for Abraham and his people, and God is saying to us, to Abraham, to his people, that I am cutting a covenant. I am establishing a covenant with you, And if I break it, may it be done to me as this animal. And if you break it, instead of what the kings would say, may it be done to you. But if you break it, may it be done to me as well. And see what's happening here is Jesus is the Lord's servant who God the Father is offering as the covenant. So unlike two humans entering a covenant saying, if you uphold your end of the bargain will be good. If you don't uphold your end of the bargain, this is what happens to you. God is establishing a covenant with the nations saying, I am giving my son as a covenant for you. If you break the covenant, he gets slain. And that's exactly what happens on the cross, listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. Now, I know you guys make fun of me because I say that Romans is the most important letter that's ever been written. And that's true. You can laugh, but it's true. And we're going to start Romans in January. And then you, then you laugh because I say that Romans chapter 8 is the most important chapter in the most important book in the Bible. And that's true, too. But Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, that's the most important paragraph. (laughs) It's It's the most important paragraph ever written. Listen to these words. Romans 3, verse 21 through 26, this explains what's going on with God putting His Son, the Lord's servant, forward as a covenant. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the whole Old Testament, which is calling people to live in a certain way, calling them to righteousness, was never intended by God to actually bring that righteousness because man couldn't work out and respond to God's call for righteousness in and of himself. So even as the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, called people to obedience to God, it never was intended to actually bring about the righteousness that it was intended to bring about because God knew that we couldn't ever actually fulfill it. So we needed somebody outside of us, the one that the law and the prophets pointed to, to actually bring that righteousness, and that's Jesus. So apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, meaning Christ, the righteousness, the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith, in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen to verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. What does that word propitiation mean? It means that God has put Jesus forward as a wrath absorbing, wrath satisfying substitute for our sin and not only absorb the wrath of God, but turned it into God's favor and grace and love. That's pointing back to Isaiah 42 where the prophet says that he will give his son, the Lord's servant, as a covenant for the nations God the Father is offering Jesus as a wrath absorbing sacrifice for those who will turn and trust in him and that's what the next half of that verse says he says that this whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood does everybody receive it no it's to be received by faith and that faith is a gift This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God executes His justice through His servant who He's put forward as a covenant, as a propitiation, he works justice in that he is vindicated his holiness is satisfied God doesn't just overlook sins but he pours out wrath for sins on his son and it can only be received by faith in those who trust in this covenant that he establishes through his son back to Isaiah 42 verse 7 notice the starkness of verse 7 says that he's putting forward his servant, who we know to be Jesus, who is a covenant, a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for the people. And who are the people? Who are these nations? Who are these all? It is those who have faith in him. And then notice why he puts forward this servant, his son, as a covenant, as a propitiation verse 7 notice the starkness of verse 7 to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison those who sit in darkness that means that what god has done in his son jesus is not merely to improve our lives but to rescue us from blindness from prison And in just a moment, we're going to come around the Lord's table, as is our custom on the first Sunday of the month. And we're going to take little pieces of bread that symbolize Jesus' body. And we're going to take little cups of juice that symbolize his blood. And as we take these elements that point towards Jesus' covenant-making, propitiation, wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross and his victory over them in his resurrection... May our hearts be stirred in this Christmas season to realize that this baby that came in a manger, this sweet, beautiful nativity scene that we get warm and fuzzy about as we contemplate and remember and should let us not stop there but let us remember and see that ultimately this baby in a manger came to be the wrath absorbing sacrifice not just for wicked people out there but for my wicked heart that was blind and imprisoned by sin. And when I see that, when we collectively see that afresh Sunday after Sunday, and especially on a day like today, when we come around the table and we take this bread and we drink this cup, may it stir in us worship and humility and joy as we contemplate that God has not just sent his son to be an ethic or a a sort of moral teacher or a warm and cuddly cultural icon, but he has sent him to release us from the captivity that we could never get free from the wickedness of our own hearts. The Lord's servant establishes a covenant. And then finally, Very briefly, the Lord's servant works for the glory of God. Verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. All of human history, God knows. Before it happens, he knows it. And he has sent his servant for his glory for our good so that we would turn away from idols and like Jesus work for the glory of God. As we come now to the communion table, remember those words from Richard Sibbs, some 400 years ago. He says, shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? You know, one of the one of the privileges and more challenging things to do in pastoral ministry is when you meet with people through the week, day after day, and you get to know people and you know the the things that they're dealing with, the things even in my own heart that I'm wrestling with. And you see what the world and what sin and what failure and what past and what How people have been sinned against and how they are wrestling with sin and and there seems to be often i think just a theme when i'm meeting with people is that there's this sense often that that we have to do something to make ourselves get to a certain place where then we are kind of good enough to sort of enter into this little zone of Religious acceptance by God and, and then we can kind of start functioning in the church or come to the table or, or just kind of be a healthy, happy person. And even though we know that we're saved by grace alone, and it's nothing that we do, there's this, there's this, just this little instinct in all of us that's a result of the fall, and it's a, it's a sort of self-centeredness in all of us that just, just sort of speaks to us that no, 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 the gospel's good for everybody else. Jesus can, can, can theoretically clean and sanctify and save and redeem and renew the worst of sinners, but but not you because you have been falling back into that thing over and over and over again for years so not so not yeah everybody else but not you and there's just this theme that i see as i as i meet with people through the years just this discouragement and this sense that i have to sort of do something to make myself at least somewhat acceptable before God before I can enter into His presence and be a thriving, happy, whole Christian. And friends, when we buy into that lie, we undercut the very truth of the gospel. Listen to what Sib says again. Shall our sins discourage us when He appears there only for sinners. Not for Christians who haven't squared away. Not for people who have all of their sinful secret habits kicked. Not for people who haven't had a bad week. Not for people who have a wonderful devotional life. Not for people who can put on a face in front of the church that speaks to their spiritual excellence. Not for those Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? And as he stands there before bruised reeds, he doesn't break them, he calls them to himself. And he says, I have died for you. Come to the table. Come and eat and drink and be merry. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table now, I pray that you would lift our heads above ourselves. We don't only make idols of the world and materialism and performance and all these things, oftentimes we make idols out of our own unworthiness and we hold it up as if it somehow overpowers the work of your son on the cross. Nothing could be further from the truth. Lord, I know that this room is full of bruised reeds and I pray today that we would see that you do not break bruised reeds but that you stand there ready to receive them and strengthen them and call them to nourish on you and you alone. So as we come to your table this morning, Lord, may we see afresh the beauty of your Son given as a covenant for us, sacrificed, bearing all of our sin, removing our shame, because of him, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are trusting in Jesus. Those who turn away from putting their hope in themselves, those who turn away even from their own discouragement over their own sin, and they look to you and they, they cry out to you. Lord, do that this morning as we come around the table. I pray that we would see Christ in all of his beauty